Lord, I just thank you that you are, have triumphed in a way that was unrecognizable by the human race. Lord, we see uh, the victory in military oppression, and yet you came and submitted to death itself. You conquered that which we feared the most, Lord. And now we pray today that as you speak into our very lives, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding, that we would truly grasp the inheritance that you have secured for us, and that we would begin to live in the experience of the very power that resurrected you from the dead, that we would live in the power of your Spirit, O God, overcoming sin and all of its destructive consequences in our lives, that we would live in victory, that we would live in peace, that we would live in joy, that we'd be filled with hope, that you would fill us with your divine love, and Father, that we would really impact our culture, which is so misguided, broken, and so lost. Lord, I pray today that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would strengthen us, that you would enable us, O oh God, to impact the world in which we are living in. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Ted Bundy, an infamous serial killer, granted an interview to the Christian psychologist, James Dobson. It was just actually the day before his execution. When he began to describe some of the agonies of what led to his uh, wayward life. He talked about his addiction to pornography. He went back to his roots explaining the development of this compulsive behavior and revealed how this addiction actually messed with his thinking. When he was 13 years old, he discovered pornographic magazines in a, in a landfill near his home. He was immediately captivated by them and became more and more addicted to violent images and magazines and videos. And, you know, he, his whole way of viewing life became quite skewed. He actually got a thrill to see women being tortured and murdered. And when he was tired of the fantasy, it could only go to one place for him. And that was actually moving into reality. By the time he was apprehended, Bundy uh, was actually, had actually killed 28 young women and girls in acts too horrible to contemplate. He was finally convicted and sentenced to death for killing a 12-year-old girl. The sad part was that he was raised in a healthy home where neither he was physically, sexually, or emotionally abused. In other words, he grew up in a, in a regular home. He said, my family attended church. They didn't drink. They didn't smoke. They didn't gamble. There was no physical abuse, no fighting. It was a solid Christian home. It's important to me that people believe what I'm about to say. He's, he's giving this interview to Dobson. I'm not blaming pornography. I'm not saying it caused me to go out and do the things I did. I take full responsibility for my actions. That's not the question. The issue is how this kind of literature contributed and helped mold and shape the kind of violent behavior that fueled my thought processes. And then at a certain point, it was instrumental in crystallizing it into making me something almost, like almost creating a separate entity within me. When asked what pushed him over the edge from thought to action, he says, it's kind of a difficult thing to describe, the sensation of reaching that point where I knew I could not control the urges any longer. The barriers that I had learned as a child were not enough to hold me back from seeking out and harming someone else. Another factor I hadn't mentioned is the use of alcohol. In conjunction with my exposure to pornography, alcohol reduced my inhibitions and pornography eroded them further. There's no way to describe the brutal urge to do that. And once it had been satisfied and spent and that energy level receded, I became myself again. In other words, when he was doing these things, he felt he was somebody else. Basically, he said, I was a normal person. I lived a normal life. I don't know if you know this. He was quite intelligent. He went to university. He was a law student. But this one small, very potent and destructive segment that I kept secret and close to myself. Those of us who have been so influenced by violence in the media, particularly pornographic violence, are not some kind of inherent monsters. 
We are your sons and your husbands. We grew up in regular families. You see, this can reach anybody and snatch them out of their complacent lifestyle. As diligent as my parents were, and they were diligent in protecting us as their children, and even though I grew up in this wonderful Christian home, there's no protection against the kind of influences that have been loosed in a society that tolerates evil. He says, I'm no social scientist, and I don't pretend to believe that John Q. Citizen thinks about this, but I've lived in prison a long time now, and I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography, deeply consumed by that addiction. The FBI's own study on serial homicide shows that most common interest among serial killers is pornography. What I hope will come of our discussion is that I will think society deserves to be protected from itself. We've been talking that there are forces that loosen this country, especially the kind of violence that well-meaning people will condemn in the behavior of a person like myself while they're walking past a magazine rack full of the very things that send young kids down the road to becoming like Ted Bundy. And that's the irony. You know, the question I asked myself as I was thinking about this, do we actually heed these warnings? On any given day, the media points out some terrible atrocity in our world that people commit against themselves and commit against others. And yet, in spite of this, our social scientists tell us that as human beings, we are intrinsically good. The answer to the problem is just simply to change the environment, which will actually affect and change the person. And so what we think is that if we have enough physical, material, and educational resources, that we will not do evil things. And yet everything about Ted Bundy's story flies in the face of that information. He had everything possibly going for his life, but he allowed one dynamic element to seep into his soul until finally it took full control of his life. And that shows you the very powerful of sin. The Bible refutes this argument by showing that from the very inception, human beings were created perfectly into the image of God, placed in a sinless environment, and given the freedom to choose between what was good and what was evil. And we know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve chose what was evil. And in that context, created the sense that all of us as human beings have a pro-disposition, pro a propensity towards doing the wrong thing. I would call that almost like our default switch. And so we need to understand, left unchecked, we will have the innate ability to actually hurt and violate each other. And I believe that our culture is continuously experiencing many different forms of pain and sorrow and hurt and violence in it. As a matter of fact, earlier in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, it said when God had created man and he allowed them to, you know, function as human beings and do what they wanted to do, basically doing their own thing. We read in the book of Genesis chapter 5, it said the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the face of the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then we read in the next few verses that God's solution was actually to bring judgment on humanity, to allow them to be destroyed. And he spared only one man, Noah, and Noah's family. And God started over again with the family. But how many know that was not the ultimate solution? The ultimate solution is not just punishing evildoers. And we know that that's not the ultimate solution because people perpetuate evil in spite of being punished. And so God came up with an even greater solution, and that's the solution that today we are celebrating. The day that marks the victory over sin and death. This is Resurrection Sunday. That is God's ultimate answer to the human sin problem. So rather today than focusing on the historical event, which most of us preachers normally do on Easter Sunday, and I remember a number of years ago seeing a little cartoon where a man came to church, and as he was leaving, he said to the pastor, good sermon, do you have any others? You know? And basically what he was saying is he comes to church once a year and hears the same sermon on the Resurrection Sunday. But I'm going to shake it up today and go in a totally different direction. As a matter of fact, as I was looking at Preaching today, 
I felt so directed by God's Spirit to preach on, so what? What's the significance of the resurrection in our personal lives? What difference does Jesus rising from the grave 2,000 years ago make in my 21st century North American life? And so in my devotional readings, while I was arguing with God this morning, because I thought, you know, this is a kind of a challenging sermon, Lord, I was reminded in Psalm 106, verse 6, it says, Before we and our fathers have sinned, we had gone astray and have acted wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not grasp the significance. The NIV says, gave no thought of your wonderful works. And so I think today what we're going to look at is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our personal lives. So how often do we recite God's great story of redemption, but don't give thought or understanding of that significance in our lives? In Ephesians, we have an amazing application of the resurrection of Jesus. And so I'm going to have you turn to chapter 2 of Ephesians today. And we're going to look at, first of all, and understand, and, and then an explanation of God's, first of all, Power over sin. Well, we're going to look, first of all, at the power of sin and then the power over sin. How many knows you don't have good news until you understand how bad the the condition really is? So just bear with me. I'm going to paint a bleak picture, and then I'm going to paint the most hopeful picture you've ever heard. Hopefully. That's the goal this morning. So there's two things in Ephesians 2 that we need to understand in order to experience true freedom. You know, our culture, we're really big on freedom. Remember, we all want to be free. We all want to do our thing. Can I tell you, most people are not free. Most people don't do their own thing. Most people are captive to what sin desires for them to do. Today I'm going to talk about how to truly be free. So the first thing we need to understand in order to experience true freedom is simply to understand the power that sin has on us as human beings. We need to understand that. We need to understand how pervasive and how destructive sin really is in our lives. I don't think we fully grasp the, the desperation of this concept. I was reading uh, during the week, you know, and I was reading, I forget where I was at actually reading, I think it was in Deuteronomy, you know, the whole idea of the desperate conditions people, when people are put in, how desperately they will behave, you know. It's amazing how abusive we can get to each other. Under extreme conditions, human beings will do dastardly things. So do we really see ourselves as God sees us before we come to him to set us free? Now notice what Paul does in chapter 2, verse 1. He kind of sets up our former condition apart from Christ. And it's not a pretty condition. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, as for you. Now he's writing to believers. Okay, so here's the context. He says, as for you, you were, past tense. But this is your condition before Christ. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So when we think of death, because it says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. When we think of death, we think of, you know, termination. We think of the end of life as we know it. But what we hear from this text is that death is also seen in another arena. We also know that there's a spiritual death or there's a socially uh, relational death. And you know, a lot of times when people experience a divorce, they feel like their spouse has died. It's been that, the grief is that great because there's a death that's happened. And that's what people need to understand. And so in this text, what we're reading about here. To be dead in our sins means that we're cut off or we're separated or we're alienated from the very presence of God. We're alienated from his life. So I, I, I said to myself, what does it really mean to be spiritually dead? And I think Paul answers that question in chapter 4 when he says in verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles. Now, that's a nice way of saying non-believers or non-covenant people. You know, the Jews were considered the covenant people. He says, don't, don't live. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And I want you to notice his descriptive of how people live apart from God. Number one, in the futility of their thinking. So there's a futility of thought. Number two, it says they are darkened in their understanding. Number three, they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. In other words, they have a condition of their heart. 
and it says that they're hard. They're not, they're, there's no sensitivity. There's a, there's a hardness there. And then it says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. How many could say that this culture is a very sensual culture? It's very promiscuous. It's totally given over to sex. I mean, it's, it's just like we're, we're gone headlong into sensuality. But you, how many notice that there's a, the contrast is between sensitivity and sensuality? And so if we're fully sensuals, we, we actually lack sensitivity. Everybody here wants somebody to love them and to be sensitive. And yet we see that so much of our culture has to do with lust and sensuality. It says here... Given over to sensuality in every kind of impurity and greed. Wouldn't you say that this is a materialistic culture and no matter how much we have, we're never satisfied? These are the things today that are driving our culture. This is where the majority of people are camped in spite of how educated or civilized we are. How many know that education and civilization is not eradicating any of the things I've just described? Because right now we're one of the most quote-unquote, educated cultures in the world, and yet we're having struggles with all kinds of these things. So this was the life we lived, Paul says, before having the Spirit of God reveal Christ to us as Lord and Savior. Then verse 3, he says this, All of us, so now this does not exclude any of us, this includes all of us, he said, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, or really that better translation there would be sinful nature. Okay, that's what he's talking about, sarks, sinful nature. And following its desires and thoughts. So in other words, we have a nature that's predispositioned towards sin and its desires, and we are now captive by those desires and thoughts, and therefore we live those things out. That's what he's describing here terrible condition. He says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In other words, deserving of judgment. The problem of sin is that, um, well, it's, it's something that we struggle with. And even though it says, this was the past tense, this is where we were, this is what governed our lives. And then Paul, uh, Paul writes in another book of, of the Bible, the book of Romans, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this day, way death came to all people because all have sinned. The reason why we do the things we do, isn't you ever ask yourself the question, why do we do the things we do? There's actually a book called that. Why do we do the things we do? And the answer is really simple. It's because we're sinners. That's why we do the things we do. You know, we have a sin nature. We're enslaved by that sinful nature. But when we come to Christ, that nature is broken. That nature has been destroyed to some measure. It's been impaired. We'll, we'll use the word impaired. That's a better way of looking at it. Because some of us say, well, yeah, but I'm a Christian. I still sin. And we'll talk about why that is. But that nature has been impaired. And look what happens now. Um, this change that comes into our life is simply this. Number one, you know you were a Christian when all of a sudden you have a new desire. I'll give you an example. You know, before I was a Christian, I had no interest in coming to church. Anybody relate to that? moment I come, become a Christian, I want to fellowship with believers. Before I was a Christian, I had no interest in knowing about God or thinking about God or obeying God or reading the Bible. When I became a Christian, all of a sudden I wanted to know God. I wanted to understand His ways. I had a hunger for His Word. How many go, that's different. Something's changed here. There's a desire that changed. That's part of this transformation that God brings into our lives. And then the second thing we're going to really focus on this morning is there's a new power. There's a new strength to do the right thing. Where before, you know, you were succumbing to what you didn't want to do. Now, all of a sudden, there's a power to say no to those things and to actually do the right thing. So here's how Peter frames it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope. How? 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is how you and I have life. It's because Christ came and conquered death that you and I can have this hope and this life. The resurrection is the basis upon which we've been given a new beginning, a new nature, and a new power in our lives. And then he goes on to say, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And then we read in his second letter, His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life. How many think that's awesome? So when God saves us and brings us into life and delivers us from death, and we're going to talk about that beautiful imagery. That's exactly what happens. We were dead, now we're alive, and God gives us a power. He's given us His power. And I'm going to point out to you, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power you and I have. And it's a power that God gives us so that he can help us live a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Okay, Before we had a fallen, sinful nature, now God imposes upon us a new nature. We now have the nature of God inside of us. How many think that's pretty awesome? We have a new nature. It says, having escaped the corruption in the world. And how is this corruption caused? By evil desires. That's what we've been reading about. So we see that this terrible condition that all of us as human beings are in. The solution to the problem of sin then is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' willingness to be our substitutionary sacrifice defeats sin, and by his death and resurrection, he raises us up from the dead. So let's take a look now back at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. That's the chapter we're working on. It says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. You were dead Now he has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then he explains how it comes about. It is by grace you have been saved. It's by God's gift that you have been set free. You've been delivered. And God raised us up with Christ. I love this part. So listen what happens. You and I who were dead... Now he's going to raise us from the dead. And where is he raising us to? I like this. It says, And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So where is Jesus today? He is he's on the throne in heaven. So we are now reigning with Christ. See, one of our biggest problems as Christians is we don't really understand what's really gone on. We're still thinking that we're creatures of this world living as once we formerly lived, you know, by our evil desires. But once we understand who we are in Christ, we understand our spiritual identity, we understand that we've been raised from the dead and we're now sitting and ruling and reigning with Christ. You know, listen to how he says it. And it says, when we are in Christ, we too are resurrected from the dead. We are now alive. And through this action of Christ's death and resurrection, we see God's love demonstrated to us. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, God did this in order in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know, I like that word, his kindness toward us. I'm studying this word. I'm writing on this word, has said in the Hebrew text, God's favor towards us. Aren't you glad God shows favor to us? Aren't you glad God is showing his kindnesses to us? Boy, I really like that. God, show me your kindness. Show me your favor. He says, I have. I've died for you. I've given you all these beautiful things. So that's the problem, the problem of sin. I want to move on, though, because this is where it gets exciting. This is where I really want to go. So when we, what we need to really understand, I think most of us in this room have it figured out. I struggle with sin. Anybody have any problems with sin? Anybody ever get tempted? Anybody get tempted? Anybody get tempted? Nobody that raised their hand, let me check your pulse. Because no temptation, you're not even alive. We're all tempted. Of course we're tempted, Pastor. Jesus was tempted. Come on. As long as you live on this planet, you'll be tempted. That doesn't mean you're sinning. It just means you're tempted. So we need to realize that as believers, here's the part I want to get to today, that we have authority and power 
over sin. That's the meaning of the resurrection story, that you and I have authority and power over sin in our lives. So here Paul in Ephesians is praying that this reality and understanding will be experienced. You know, if you're living in ignorance, you know, some, if you were a poor child and some rich relative that you didn't know, and, and you inherited millions of dollars, but you didn't know that, you'd still live like a poor child, wouldn't you? You're still like a person in poverty. You have to experience it. You have to understand what is available to you. And that's what Paul is praying here in Ephesians chapter 1. So he pleads that their understanding would be, you know, it would be made alive. That they would get it. They would understand what Christ has done for them. So here's the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. I love this prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In order that you may know the hope of which he has called you. So now he's praying, you know what? That you would have an epiphany. That's my prayer for you today. That you would have an epiphany today. That you would have an awakening today. You go, wow, I get it. Woo. You ever have those moments in life where you just go, I never understood this. Now I'm getting it. That's my prayer. That's Paul's prayer. Okay, so what's he praying? That you might know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And his, now here's the part I like, and his incorruptibly, you know, I was looking this up in the Greek, incorruptibly is actually an emphasis by the writer here. It's not just his great power. It's his incorruptibly, is it, oh, sorry, is incomparably. His incomparable. There's no way to compare this power that he's given us. Then he describes the power like this. He says, for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, yeah, it is really powerful. Think about this. You have a dead person who comes back to life. How many think that takes a lot of power to raise a dead person back to life? Anybody think that's a lot of power? I would argue it is the greatest power on this planet. It's very easy for us to destroy life, but it's very difficult for us to create life. You know, that, that's, and especially a life that's already been lived. He creates this power to raise people from the dead. Wow, this is the same power, he says, that's living inside of us. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father sent the Spirit to raise the body of Christ back to life again. Is the same Spirit that's now taken you as this dead person in sins and made you come to life. You are that dead bone from the vision of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. You have come to life. That's an amazing thought. And then it says here, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. What's he talking about here? You have to understand the first century. These people all believed in all these different demons, all these different gods, all these different authorities. They were calling out to all these demonic forces for power. And what he's saying here is that the power that you and I have is greater than all of those intermediaries. Because they actually had a system in the Greek mindset that he had all these intermediaries to get to the God, the ultimate true God. Because we were so tainted, we could never get to this pure God. But that's not the picture Paul is painting. You and I can actually come directly to God through what Jesus Christ did for us. So when you and I gave our lives to Christ, when you and I, you know, by faith accepted what God did on our behalf, all of a sudden we were raised to life and brought above all authorities, dominions, and powers. So as a Christian, you and I actually have authority and dominion over all the powers of darkness. I can't understand Christians walking around going, I'm afraid of the devil. Why? He's under you. He's under you. You're with Christ. But you've got to understand that. And then he, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in the inner being. <clears throat> so what is Paul praying? That we would understand it, we would experience it. Listen to Paul's own prayer for his own life. That I might, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. 
you know what? We're going to experience ultimately the power is resurrection. You and I are, are going to act. You no, know, we've actually been raised to life, but even our body is going to conquer death. How many know that? Your body is going to conquer death. When Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise. Your body will rise. Yeah. It's not just a spirit thing, guys. It's an amazing thought. Then it goes on, you know, it's this resurrection power that overcomes death. Believers have been raised from the dead like Christ. In Ephesians 2.5, it says, He's made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. So this exaltation and authority of the believer comes and is activated at our conversion. You know, but how many, how many have a computer and you, you buy software and then you, it types in the activation number? Anybody, anybody done this? You have to type in an activation number? But how many know even when that happens and all of a sudden, poop, the software comes up? How many experience this? But most of us, we don't even have a clue what's really going on. I have to be honest. There's a few techno people, they kind of get it. But how many know that most of us, when we buy these electric products today, we don't even use half of what's there? Isn't that true? We actually pay for more than we use. Does anybody know that? they got way more stuff going on there. I want to declare to you this morning that as Christians, you have, you have no idea, most of us have no idea how much is really there. We're not using it all. We just activated it, but there's all these programs and we're never using them. There's a power inside of us that we never tap into. That's what I'm trying to get across today. That is so amazing. Listen to this. Um, I've already read this verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, but let me, let me give it to you this way. Remember the story of Jesus? He comes to the tomb of Lazarus. Remember that? And what does he do? He says, roll that stone away. Now, Lazarus has been dead for four days. The sisters say to Jesus, hey, I don't know about this, Jesus. This is not a good idea. He's been dead. He stinks. In other words, he's already starting to decompose. You follow what's going on here? How many think that's pretty intense? This is not like your funeral service where they're, you know, doing all the right stuff to preserve the body. This is like in the Middle East, the weather's hot. Four days, this is not a good situation. You know, they even put, you know, perfumes. They, they put spices into the burial cloth to somehow, you know, make it so it doesn't smell so bad. You guys catch on, right? He says, roll the stone away. They go, well, well, Jesus, he's going to stink, you know. He's dead. And what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here's this guy. Because he's all bound up. He's hopping out of the tomb. You know, how many think, well, I love that story. I think it's a picture. I think it really happened, but I think it's a picture that when you and I hear the gospel preached and somehow we hear the voice of God calling our name, he says, come forth, and you and I, boom, we come to life. Hallelujah. And we're all bound up in grave clothes. And Jesus says what? Loose him. And I'm going to tell you this morning that a lot of times we're struggling with things in our lives because we're still... Bound up in grave clothes. And Jesus wants us to be free, folks. He wants us to experience the freedom of the good news of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Do you know that God changes even our very desires? Listen to what he says in Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of our sheep, equip you with every good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. May he work in us what is pleasing to him. Do you know God has an agenda for your life? You see, you have to understand, before you were a child of God, you were in rebellion against God. You were doing your thing. We need to understand that our culture is in rebellion against God, trying to do their own thing. But God has a purpose for every life. And God wants to save us in order for us to discover His amazing plan and purpose for our lives. He has prepared in Ephesians 2.10... Good works for us to do. It says, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Wouldn't it be great if we got down and said, Lord, I want to be like you. 
I want to do your will. I believe that the happiest person on the planet is the one doing the will of God. Now we should be saying, Lord, help me to know it and to do it. And to know it, really, he gives us a guideline how to discover it. It's right here. And then he starts guiding our steps day in and day out. Listen to what Ephesians says. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we say to people, you can only work out what God worked in. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That's when you know you're a child of God. You say, Lord, I want to do your will. But you say, you know, Pastor, this is amazing. Why am I not experiencing all that you're talking about? I'm glad you asked that question. Because that's where we really want to conclude. We need to get an understanding of what we can... And maybe look at God's illustration from his ancient people, the Israelites. Remember what they were promised as an inheritance? What were they promised? The land. The promised land. And how many know that they had to go into that promised land? But they had to go in by faith. And remember, once they rebelled against God, and they didn't want to go in, and God says, fine, you're not going in. Then they say, oh, we'll go in now. God says, no, you're not. And they tried to go in. They got defeated. Remember that? Okay, so you and I just can't do our thing on our, in our own way. We can't even serve God in our own human energy. We'll fail. So how do we live this life? Well, you know, I found it so fascinating as they went into the promised land. How did they go there? They had to go there step by step, right? He says, every place you put your foot, you'll possess. So you and I have to appropriate. You and I have to acquire. You and I have to do this step by step. You know how many know in our culture we want shortcuts? We want everything tomorrow. Or sorry, everything yesterday. Right? We don't want to wait for tomorrow. We want it all yesterday. We want everything. We want the full meal deal. And we'll pay credit to get it. Isn't that the way we work? Sure we do that. But here's what I'm saying. They had to act in faith. And every time that they obeyed God, they won victories. And you read through the book of Joshua. It's amazing, you know. And then they had setbacks. Remember that? And sometimes as Christians, we have setbacks because, you know, we, we do things in a way that God says, that's not the way I want it done. And we have a setback. And then we start learning about God's ways, right? Sure we do. And then sometimes we had setbacks because, like with the Gibeonites, they didn't inquire of God. They didn't pray. And so they just went ahead and said, yeah, I know what we need to do now. I got the instructions. And they went ahead and they got deceived. I mean, no, we're fighting a wily enemy. He's going to try to deceive us. So even though we understand what our job is, sometimes we get deked out and faked out and deceived in what we're trying to accomplish. So we read all of these things. And they're really an, analog- an analogy of our own inheritance, of what we're trying to take into our lives. It's all a picture to teach us that we can learn from their example. So what are we supposed to learn? Well, what areas in our lives does God want us to overcome and drive out the enemies to our soul? What are some of those things? What are some of the things that you struggle with? You say, well, you know, I have a problem with unbelief, or I have a problem with doubt, or I have a problem with worry. You know, we could list a whole bunch of things, you know. Whatever the issue is in your life, you say, I'm struggling with these things, Pastor. And I want to declare to you today that there's a power inside of you greater than the power of sin, number one. You say, well, then why do I sin if I'm a Christian and I have this power inside of me? That's a good question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down to this, uh, the book of Romans. So let's apply it into our lives. Here's what Romans 6, 6 says. For we know that our old self, our unregenerated sinful nature, was crucified with him so that the body of sin, our sinful nature, might be done away with. Or it has been rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. It's not that sin has been removed in the sense that we never deal with it again, but rather... That sin's power has become ineffective in the life of a believer who understands and realizes what Christ really accomplished on the cross. We need to understand, number one, that we can say no to sin. Number two, that we have the power to do what's right. And Paul's argument in Romans is real simple. Dead men don't sin. How many know that's true? 
If you're dead, you don't sin. If you're dead in Christ, then you are dead to the things that are calling you to sin. So in Romans 6, he says, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, I think there's a difference between sinning and letting sin rule in your life. Okay, what's the difference? Well, Paul uses an analogy of slavery to help us understand this. Now, you have to remember in the first century in the Roman Empire, most people were slaves. I don't think most people understand that. And if you went to Rome, most people were slaves. Probably two-thirds of the population were slaves. Six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Paul's first hearers understood that the master no longer had power over a slave once death had conquered that slave's life. So Paul is not saying that sin is destroyed, but rather robbed of its power by a greater principle called death. Remember what death means. It means separation, to be dead to sin. It means separation from sin. How? By being united with Christ. That's how you overcome sin. So... You have to reckon yourself to be dead to sin. I'm going to give you an illustration here as we close. How many know that there's a power at work right now in this room? It's called gravity. Isn't that true? So what happens if I take this book and I let go? What's going to happen? Why is it going to fall? Gravity. There's a power, right? But what happens if I do this? What's happening? Is gravity still in effect? Why isn't it falling? Why isn't it falling? Because it's sitting on something. Or why isn't it falling? Because I'm holding it up. There's something holding it up. There's a power greater than gravity at this moment. Okay? Here's what you need to understand. Think of sin like, as like gravity. But if we have something between ourselves and the power of gravity, gravity no longer has authority over this book. At this point, it has something holding it up, right? There's another power at work. As a Christian, what we need to understand is Christ is the power that's overruling sin and death. Okay? So when you and I yield to Christ, when you and I surrender, when you and I submit to Christ, when you and I obey his word, we are actually putting into an effect a law and a power greater than the power of sin. How many say that's amazing? See, the non-believer, you know what people say, well, I'm free, I can do anything I want. Christians, non-Christians always tell me that. I go, no, you, no, you're not. You're not free. You have to sin. You are a slave to sin. You can't help yourself but sin. The only people on this planet who are truly free are the believers who can say no to sin by saying yes to God. That's the power of the resurrected life. Is that great? So if I'm struggling with alcohol, I can say no to alcohol because there's a power in my life greater than alcohol. I could just go down and name any sin in my life and I go, Christ is greater than that sin. I just have to submit to Christ. I have to allow Christ to take effect because if I lay this book here and let go, what's going to happen? It's, it's going to fall. And that's why Christians sin. It's not that Christ is absent. It's just that they are not trusting Christ. They're yielding to sin. And whatever you are a slave to, it masters you. If you want to be a slave to sin or a slave to God, how many here say, I choose to be a slave to God? You only have a choice. There's only two choices in life. We're all going to be slaves. You have to choose who you want to have as a master. Who do you want as a master, sin or Christ? Let's stand. Went in a totally different direction today. You know what? It's such a great story, the resurrection. And I could talk about, you know, people have tried to disprove it and all the rest of it. But you know, the greatest evidence for the resurrection is a changed life. That there's a power at work greater than the power of sin. But you know, I felt so deep in my heart today to say to you, listen, some of you in this room, you're struggling with issues in your soul. You're just saying, I just feel so defeated, Pastor. I don't feel like I'm living in victory. 
But my prayer is that God will open the eyes of your understanding today to show you that there is a power inside of you that is greater than your sin. How many think that's even more? In some ways, that's, that's the application of this. What good is it? And this is the sad thing. A lot of people can say to you, I know what Easter's about. It's about Jesus rising from the dead. But it doesn't change their lives. They can have that information in their head, but it doesn't change their lives. You could even say, I believe that, but you don't appropriate it. You're not applying it to your life. And it's not changing your life. But how many here say, you know what, Pastor? My life is changing because I understand it and I'm responding to it and I'm surrendering my life as a slave to God and allowing Him to be my master rather than letting sin be my master. How many would rather have Jesus as a master than sin? My hand is up. I want Jesus. I'm going to choose Jesus because I know He loves me. I'm going to choose Jesus because I know the fruit and the result of that is joy. It's peace. It's hope. I love that. If you choose sin, I can guarantee you there's a pleasure in sin for a season. But then after that, there comes guilt. There comes shame. There comes brokenness. There comes alienation between yourself and God and with other people. It's destructive. And I look around my culture today and my heart weeps as I see all of the brokenness in people's lives. I see the effect of sin every single day. I open the paper and I read the effect of sin over and over and over again. But you know, it's the joy, too, of seeing lives come to Christ and watching sin be broken and seeing lives be put back together again, seeing hope fill people's lives, seeing the power of the gospel change people's lives because people choose to make Jesus Lord. With every head bowed this morning, maybe you're here today and say, you know what? I'm tired of letting sin rule and reign in my life. I'm tired of letting sin be the master. Today, I want to choose Jesus. Because I heard today there's a power greater than my shame, greater than my sin, greater than succumbing to these things in my life. There's a power at work that's even greater than sin and shame. It's the power of Jesus Christ. And that's the power I want to have working in my life. And if that's you today, just raise your hand. You're going to cry out, say, Lord, hear my cry. Just raise your hand. Be unashamed this morning. Just raise your hand and say, Jesus, I want you to be master. I want sin to be defeated in my life. I'm choosing you. I'm going to become a slave of Christ so I can walk in the freedom and in the grace and in the power and the hope that great people are responding this morning. So Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and my sisters that we're going to say yes to you, Jesus. That we embrace this principle of power in our life, the power of God that can say no to sin and yes to you, to doing your will and not just our will, to discovering that life is filled with hope and joy and to be seeing the power of sin and shame and guilt and brokenness defeated in our lives. Lord, I pray today that this will be a day that we move forward in victory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.